difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Genevieve Kosky and Scott Tobias. Tasha Robinson is away this week at the Tribeca Film Festival, unless that story is all some sort of elaborate con. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we'll be playing ourselves in a lyrical blurring of fact and fiction that only seems like an episode of The Next Picture Show. Genevieve, what's ahead for us? What's ahead for us, or what's ahead for our lightly fictionalized counterparts? Or is the distinction even worth making? That's one of the questions at the heart of both movies we'll be looking at this week, with our pairing of Abbas Kiarostami's 1990 classic Close-Up and Chloe Zhao's The Rider, a new release that lives in the space between the real world and the fictional world that Kiarostami helped carve out. Both feature real people playing themselves in some version of a story that really happened to them, and both blend approaches associated with documentary and narrative features to find a third approach that draws on the strengths of both while committing to neither. In this week's episode, we'll look at close-up and discuss how it blends a real-life incident with a recreation of the same, where it fits into Kiarostami's career and in the history of Iranian cinema, what it says about the relationships between those who create art and those who appreciate it, and its lasting influence on other filmmakers. And remember... If you hear the sound cutting out at key moments in this podcast, that could be an audio glitch, or it could be a reminder that no form of art can depict reality without distorting it in some way. Or both. On the surface, Close Up is one of the simplest films we've ever covered on this show. But that fails to take into account just how slippery that surface is. It's an unflashy depiction of a minor crime and its ensuing trial, shot almost entirely in long takes, including some extensive stretches of minimally edited trial footage. It begins and ends with a group of men visiting a house, and its climax involves a leisurely moped ride through the streets of Tehran with a stop to buy some flowers. It's a humble effort, at least compared to the scale at which most movies operate, but it's also a film fully alive to every possibility its scenario allows it to explore, becoming nothing less than an inquiry into the nature of identity, the meaning of forgiveness, art's obligation to the truth, and reality itself. The film tells the strange, true story of Hossein Sabzian, an Iranian man who claims to be the famous film director Mohsen Makhbabov, when he meets the matriarch of the upper middle class Ahanka family on a city bus. He then proceeds to exploit the confusion, cultivating a relationship with the Ahanka family with the suggestion that they and their home might play important roles in his next film, and borrowing a little money in the process. It doesn't take that long for Mr. Ohanka to suspect something is amiss, leading him to bring in both the police and a journalist, Hossein Farazmand, whose article about the arrest of a, quote, bogus Makhbabov would eventually lead to the creation of close-up. To revisit the bogus Makhbabov incident, Kirstami constructed a kind of cinematic hall of mirrors. It opens with a recreation of Sabzian's arrests that almost plays as if Kirstami has planted a camera in the wrong place. We watch Farazmand, playing himself, arriving at the Ahanka's house via cab. But Kiristami is less interested in what's unfolding inside the home than he is in the chatty cab driver, a rolling aerosol can, and Farazmand's attempts to secure a tape recorder. We'll see the arrest later, but we'll get there via a different route. Soon, however, Sabzian will have our full attention, emerging as an odd, unclassifiable figure. He comes off less as a con man than an eccentric who can't fully explain his own actions. 
Not that the film doesn't try to figure out what happened. Kiristami recreates the incident using Sabzian and the Ahankas to relive their past encounter, and the trial scenes capture the combined efforts of Kiristami and the legal system to tease out the details, explore Sabzian's possible motives, and try to reach a conclusion as to what should be done. It all culminates in a scene in which the bogus Mahbubov and the real Mahbubov meet and visit the Anhanka's home together. We don't see that visit, however. As in the opening sequence, the camera doesn't go where we expect it to go, and the film ends without revealing what happens. And, due to the sound cutting out, we barely hear what Sabzian and Mahbubov say to each other. We don't learn much about the Ahankas, except by accident. In moments like Mrs. Ahanka insisting that one of her sons isn't a baker, but the manager of an important bakery. For all the time spent with Sabzian, we don't really get to know him either, his love of movies and art overshadowing virtually every other aspect of his personality. Was he motivated by money, or an attempt to deepen the bond he forms with the Ahankas around their shared love of Mahbov's films? Does he deserve the forgiveness he receives? The film has no answers, but Kier's Tommy isn't perversely withholding the truth so much as asking us to reconsider where we look for it. The facts aren't hard to summarize. The meaning of this odd incident, however, remains elusive. <laughs> آجون شما متهمی به یک فقر کلاهبرداری و یک فقر شروع کلاهبرداری شاکیاتم در دادگاه حاضرم و از شکایتشون هم صرف نظر نمیکنم شما در حد این دو سال از خود دفاع قبول داری قبول نداری در صورتی که قبول داری شهرش برای اون چجور میخواد شما کلاهبرداری بکنی من مثلا سرقت رو من نه اونا مطرح نیست هیچ راجب سرقت فقط راجب کلاهبرداری و شروع کلاهبرداری مثلا اینکه در رابطه با شروع کلاهبرداری که ذکر شده این انگیزه نبوده یعنی از نظر سطح اجتماعیش شاید باشه اما از نظر سطح روانیش نه so, basic question, what did you all think of Close Up? Genevieve, you had not seen this before, so maybe we'll start with you. Uh, yeah, I had not seen it before, and I really had like very little frame of reference going into it. So it was like, uh, I'm not going to lie, it was kind of a semi-perplexing experience like going through it, especially that opening reenactment sequence of the arrest that you kind of outlined in the keynote, like just like trying to get a handle on what I was seeing and how it was relating to what I knew this movie was about. But uh, the film really came together for me in the very long scene that the movie is more or less named for, uh, The Trial, when, you know, we were mostly staying on Sabzian's face that whole time with occasional, you know, straying of the camera around him. I don't know if it was just the unbroken stare nature of that, but I like it really drew me in to the movie in a way I hadn't really felt up until that point in it. And it sort of helped recontextualize everything that came before it. And so I feel like by the time I had finished watching it, it fit together in a way that like I didn't feel it fitting together at the beginning. Yeah, the ending really crystallizes everything, too. It's such a beautiful ending. That was kind of my impression the first time I've seen it. This, I've seen it a couple more times subsequently, including you know viewing it before this podcast. And what really strikes me about this film is just how casually radical it is mm-hmm. i mean just just he's breaking all the rules and, and, yeah, it's, and, it's like nothing i'd ever seen before right, which is yeah. why it was like kind of off-putting at the beginning because yeah. i didn't have a context for it no i mean he's he's like reinventing cinema in a way that just seems very natural to him and just maybe a reflection of the way his mind works i mean he would go on to do a film like taste of cherry which has a, a very interesting 
ending uh, where suddenly it switches to this uh, really extraordinary self-reflexivity that comes out of nowhere but is quite profound. It's just an instinct that he has to do this, and it's, it's one of those things where it all seems so simple. And then when you uh, consider what he's doing, very odd and exciting and you know intellectually stimulating and, and moving at the same time, I, I really find this film endlessly fascinating. I think he's one of those directors also, the more of his films you see, the easier it is to kind of understand what's going on, uh, mm-hmm. kind of get tuned into his rhythms. I mean, this is kind of even an outlier. It's maybe his most famous film. Mm, Taste of Cherry, probably, maybe more. Maybe mm-hmm. certified copy. Well, certified copy at this point, yeah. But it's an outlier in the sense that the whole docufiction thing is not something he came back to quite as um, you know intensely as this. But it's also a key film to, to what he does. You know, and it helped kind of open up what he did in terms of playing with reality. I and mean, there's Taste of Cherry, but there's also the other two films in what's called the Coker trilogy. Which the first one is Where's My Friend's Home, which mm-hmm. is the first one I've seen, and, and it's one of those movies I can point to. It's like, oh. This changes the way I look at movies. It's not Where even is as, the friend's home. Yeah, it's yeah. not even as radical as his other ones. No, but it's just it's, at all, at all. No, it's, it's, but it's, but it's just like neorealism done perfectly. But the next ones kind of like are about to wonder your other the events around that film, kind of fictionalizing. Which of the other two again? There's life and nothing but, or life and nothing more. Okay. I think it's caused, and then there's and through the olive trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Not all the trilogy, and where there's friend time is very easy to find. The other two are not. The third one's tied up with Miramax film rights. Like it's one of those films <laughs> that they they snatched up and never really released. Um, I was yeah. lucky to see a screening of it at, yeah. a, at a college at one point, yeah. but but we're getting you know too too far. Too, we're getting deeper. No, this is the context people is, crave when yeah. they listen to the well, next I, picture. I will <laughs> say though, I will say though, I think there is a way of getting into his work. You can maybe suggest an order mm-hmm. that people could kind of find their way through. I mean, maybe chronological is not bad in the sense of kind of getting to see how he develops but you know you don't want to start with the wind will carry us right right uh, and then work your way back to uh no. the friend's house like, um, like, that was actually i needed i wanted to see when will carry us and i took my wife and it was her first kiristami film and it was like throwing someone in the deep end of the oh, pool no, that's, yeah. that's, i mean <laughs> even that even for hardened kiristami people that's a tough one and mm. the new one the, the like last one is uh is a tough one too i like them both the though frames, yeah but. circling back to what i was trying to make though it's like when you realize that, that opening scene is funny if it's your first Kiristami, you might not get that what he's doing there is actually pretty amusing. You know? yeah, <laughs> just kind of like just keeping playful. the focus somewhere else, you know. And like, like all of a sudden, the, you know, I think Jonathan Rosenbaum does a commentary on this film on, on the Blu-ray and on Filmstruck, and it's like all of a sudden the aerosol can is the star of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that that was the first moment in the film where I kind of like sat up a little straighter. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah, you know, because yeah. up until Wait. that point, we're mostly watching them through the windshield. Mm-hmm. Which, as I understand from listening to Josh and Adam uh, on Film Spotting talk about Kiristami, is like maybe a signature shot uh, yeah. of, of his. Oh yeah, yeah. He loves. T- I mean, all of Taste of Cherry is is a cab ride, and right, right yeah, but yeah. But yeah, it's also just sort of a familiar framing mm-hmm. uh, in cinema. So when he gets out of the cab and then the the can rolls for what seems like ten minutes, <laughs> it feels like something different and unique but it's structurally strange. it's yeah. it, it, it's a very striking and, and unusual you know back way into this story which once you get to the trial becomes you know quite straightforward and pretty tense and um but not heavy you know like you say it's kind of funny and like it's not a comedy but overall it's a pretty light premise i think mm-hmm. you, you know 
what crime he did commit, fraud to the extent he did commit it, is like fairly harmless, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a little bit of levity. And I don't mean that in the like, haha, funny sense, but more in just the it doesn't feel like the film is weighing on you as you watch it. Yeah, it's, it's such a minor crime. But also, I think the counterpoint to that is that it means so much to Sabzi. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like his soul is on trial in this movie. Yeah, um, yeah it has depth, true. but it's not necessarily heavy. You know, yeah, the film is deft. The filmmaking yeah. is quite is, deft is a good word. Yeah. Yeah, the filmmaking is quite deft. And, you know, like I was saying, I mean, it's just so casually radical. You know, you really think, you know, when you talk about the types of films like this that have really altered the course of cinema, you expect those alterations to be jarring in some way. You expect, you know, expect it to be like like the staircase in Potemkin or, or the shower scene in Psycho or something that's just going to kind of grab you by the labels. And that's not that's not what Kiara Stummy's doing at all. But when you start to talk about fiction and documentary and what the rules of both are, are ostensibly supposed to be and how he violates those rules so thoroughly in the way he's conceived and directed this film. I mean, it, it kind of blows your mind <laughs> and it just really sets a course for how both mediums, both fiction film and documentary films might you know develop uh, beyond this point. And you can see this is like a catalyst for that change. So Close Up was a breakthrough film, not just for Kiarostami, but for Iranian cinema as a whole. It kind of was a festival hit that kind of announced to the rest of the world there's really there's something happening here in Iran. Does this make sense to you as a breakthrough for a whole country? Well, let's see. I mean, I think at that point we had seen... Well, when did Close Up actually find its way into America and American theaters? Was it right after 1990? It feels like my awareness a little of bit Close later, Up came, yeah. came at... My first real awareness of Kiarostami was Taste of Cherry mm-hmm. and almost seems like we backtracked that but I, but that was 97 I think my first awareness was when I was working at a video store and we got suddenly from Facets here in Chicago just got a whole you know shipment of Iranian films including you know, Kiarostami some Makhmabov and, mm-hmm. and that was um, you know kind of checked them out out of curiosity and that was kind of when uh, I realized what was going on but I don't know that Close Up even played that widely in the United States no no maybe it was something that was I mean I don't think later. Ebert reviewed a movie, uh, Kiarostami movie until Taste of Cherry yeah, as, as sort of like one he, one measure, yeah. Which he gave which, one which star like. to. He gave it one star. <laughs> uh, but like, but my introduction to Iranian cinema, or at least I think the art house introduction to Iranian cinema, was more films about children, movies like The White Balloon, or a film like you know Children of Heaven, which I guess was released in 1997 as well. So maybe it wasn't wasn't until you know the mid to late 90s that Iranian cinema really became part of the you know really burst onto the American scene. But I think we got to know it first as a cinema that was about reflecting certain social realities through the eyes of children because this way you could you could make fairly radical statements or, or political statements without really putting the hammer to the nail too hard. Yeah, I mean, Weird Friends, it almost plays like a, like a James Joyce short, short story from Dublin or something where, where it has like this moment at the end that kind of ties it all up and it's really a film about how sometimes you have to defy authority. And it's just sort of like a child's introduction to injustice in some ways, you know, and it's uh, so so beautiful and simple and, and that was, and children's films were a way to do that as well. One other point that I think is really crucial about Iranian cinema Certainly, from an American perspective, is that it is that it humanized a country that to, yeah. that to us seemed quite frightening and, yeah. and alienating, and it actually and it also revealed to us that that Iran had you know a great artistic community and also had a thriving middle class, mm-hmm. and you see that middle class in close up, and you see it in a film like Layla, which is yeah. which is a beautiful 1996 adaptation of sort of a riff on a doll's house, yeah. uh, which you can't find anymore. A lot of these films you, you can't find. Yeah, I know it's it's um, tough. Let's out of print. Like that movie stuck with me, and it's probably worth noting here that. These films didn't necessarily play theaters in Iran, and some of them were, were probably kind of passed around 
underground on, on yeah. videotape and, and later DVD. I, I mean, but, some of these guys are, are taking serious political yeah. risks. I mean, I mean Jeff uh, Panahi. And right. Panahi was a, 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 on house arrest and made a couple of films. Anyway. Uh, anyway. And <laughs> if was, anyone called, this is not a film, which I, which I, which which, I love. Which was smuggled uh, in a cake, if yeah. I recall, on a, on a thumb Crazy drive. Crazy story. But, uh, like, but the, one that, the image that stuck with me from Layla is this, this couple. I mean, it's, it's a film ultimately about someone who's pressured into trying to, you know, taking on another wife, a second wife. But mm-hmm. it's this couple happily married. They can't have kids, which is hence the need, quote unquote, need to have a second wife. But they're in their apartment watching a bootleg copy of Dr. Zhivago. You know, they just want to yeah. hang, they just want to hang out and watch movies, you know? Yeah. And, and that was what's so eye open about close up and other films is it's like, this is not the Iran you're used to seeing. No, I mean, actually, and, if, if you, we talked about yeah, this is not a film. Conspicuously in uh, Jafar Panahi's DVD collection is uh, the film Buried with Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, and it's that's like, what he was watching. Not not to get too political, guys, but when you know when people talk about you know bombing Iran and, and attacking Iran, it's like it's harder to think about those things when you've wandered the streets with these characters, you know. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not some monolithic society. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of complexity there, and also just something that gets revealed to us. The deeper you get into Iranian cinema and Pacific filmmakers, uh, just how much depth in terms of theme and aesthetics that exists within that scene mm-hmm. as well. I mean, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of sophistication there, an enormous variety. It's not just simple neorealist children's films. There's just a whole lot more to the, the scene than that. Well, I, I have to ask, given that we're talking about close-up, where Makhmobov fits in mm. this growing awareness of Iranian cinema in the West or yeah. just outside of Iran. He's, he's He's interesting because, like, I've seen a lot of his movies, but I haven't seen some of his bigger movies. Like, I have not seen The Cyclist, okay. which is referenced throughout this. But his whole history is very interesting. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Kiarostami was a filmmaker in the 70s and through the 80s. He, I don't think at that point he was particularly political. Makhmabov was a radical, you know, supportive of and, and, and went to prison for being in, in support of the Iranian Revolution and came out of it fairly you know, staunch and then has his politics have drifted. In the other direction over the years, he, he apparently now lives in Paris and supports the Iranian Green Movement. Um, and he and Kiarostami, there's sort of an interesting history I learned, I learned from listening to the commentary on this, which is they, they weren't close. They were closest when they made this film, but then their rivalry kind of deepened after this uh, mm-hmm. as well. But, but uh, Mark, as a result of this, I think in part, yeah. uh, but I think also maybe just, just in part of artistic ego at yeah. that point. But, yeah. but I mean, like Mahmoud's films after this were. You know, kind of bear the influence of this and other Kiarostami films. Is too. We did a moment of innocence back at the dissolve, and yeah. that is is very much you know revisiting real events with the people who did them in, in many ways. You know, in, in, in oh yeah, side. no, there's a lot of connections between mm-hmm. close up and moment of innocence, which I, I I have to I always have to point out. We were a for profit publication, okay? <laughs> and uh, and we did uh, a moment of innocence as a as a we did multiple. We're features. talking about the dissolve, on the dissolve, our, yes. the dissolve. So so uh, it was one, it was one one for us, one for us, yeah. maybe one for them, yeah. Yeah, that was that was a, that was absolutely the most the most one for us choice we made I think, uh, but I I was a huge I am a huge admirer of Makhmabov's films. You know, A Moment of Innocence was a standout, but I you know I'd seen Gabe and The Silence and Kandahar and a lot of these films, none of which you can see anymore. I have not seen The Cyclist. Um, Bring back BHS. But he was he had <laughs> a, we're he had you know it wasn't just him. I mean he was a family of of filmmakers. His daughter makes films. Well, yeah, his daughter daughter Samira uh, made a film called Blackboards that's quite extraordinary and also 
something you cannot see. Uh, she, she also she also made uh, one of the better shorts on that September 11th anthology that was made the year after 9/11. So she, she was really talented. Uh, uh, there another one, Hannah Makmalbaf, but she also made some films. Uh, so it was, it was kind of a, a family effort, and uh, he's a major filmmaker who whose work because of these gaps in streaming you can't really see a lot of his works but but it's a little i would say more stylized than kurosami allowed himself to be Mm -hmm. um maybe you would you would make that statement but you i think you would also to get back to close-up say that he was concerned with all the things that Sabzian was talking about in terms of the types of characters mm-hmm. that he was interested in and the types of lives that he wanted to illuminate. And that obviously meant a great deal to Sabzian. And you can see that so much in the, in the scenes where he's trying to account for why he did what he did, you know, and, and it's, it's hard for him to do it. In fact, he's act, asked by the judge, what, three different times. Why did, yeah. why did you do this? Well, when you, when you were talking earlier about Iranian cinema, sort of Trojan horsing social political ideas into stories of children, like it made me think about how this sort of does that, not in a story of children, but in a story of a, a film or of a filmmaker who is from what I perceive from this film and what you guys have spoken about, like does interact with certain ideas and that we see this character that so clearly and strongly relates to those ideas and that like feels like a commentary in and of itself when there's like an obvious class divide between Sabzian and the Ahanka family, you know, and it's just it's all very sort of backgrounded and like there for you to pick at it if you want to pick it up. I, I like the idea of like cinema as a way to interact with these ideas within a film. It's obviously powerful for somebody like Sabzian to be able to see himself or, or, or yeah, I mean, connect, he, he, he connect keeps saying that on, you know like he, he, and, yeah um yeah, i mean that's that's part of what film can do you know particularly if it, there aren't films that have a, a huge commercial motive either this is you know good makamobov is a real artist and um and he's interested in you know the sorts of lives that maybe people don't get to see very much watching the movies so what do we think of Sabzian? does he does he emerge as a sympathetic figure to you guys he does to me yeah, hugely. Kind of, kind of. Why, why, why you think that he wouldn't? Well, I mean, I mean, he is, he is, you know, drawing back into the bare basics. He is a con man. I mean, he is, mm-hmm. he is trying to take advantage and, and exploit his family. Yet, I was ready to forgive him as well. <laughs> you know, I was. Uh, well, again, going back to that scene in the trial and like how I talked about the film sort of coming alive in that moment for me, like his continued refusal slash inability to answer the question of why mm-hmm. is like what I found so fascinating about that character because it didn't seem like evasion. It seemed like he was actually trying to express a reason, but he couldn't express it the way he wanted to or he couldn't make them understand it no matter how many different ways he tried to approach it. So there is like an element of feeling frustrated with him in that moment. So I, I, it was a very interesting tension because I just felt like screaming, like, just say, just say what you did and why you did it, you know? But hearing him sort of elucidate all these ideas of, you know, what went into his decision or just subconscious desire to do this, like was so compelling and it created that tension with that frustration. Yeah. And and I think, I think we don't necessarily need to hear from him to kind of puzzle out why he'd be interested in doing this. Uh, You know, this is a, he gets to go into this space, which is, you know, uh, which would have no no space for him otherwise. Right. Exactly. And not only, not only that, but he gets to control the situation Mm -hmm. too and, and and direct and be deferred to and work to work with the actors and be kind of a big shot and Mm -hmm. and not just be, and be his cinematic hero. And, and I think all of that is very, 
clear and relatable and as a as a con largely harmless uh, i don't think there's any point at which he was a threat to them i i don't think there's any point at which he was trying to extract a tremendous amount of money it seems like the money that he did borrow from them was a pretty small amount i don't know what he tried to get them to cut down their tree i think that is true that's true but there's like there's there's no value to that other than the power to be able to dictate that people cut down the tree you know, it's a it's a curious case. Certainly, this is a v- very unusual con, but uh, but it's it's one that you feel inclined to forgive him for it. Yeah, I mean, it, the most harm done seems to be to the family's egos in those interviews with them early on, where they you know talking about like it's not how the article portrayed us, and and sort of like the son's entitlement about not having a job six months after he graduated, and the family is not like drawn in, in any sort of overtly negative way. But in contrast to Sabzian's desire or like what drew him into that situation, I think it feels like their concerns about how they were harmed seem fairly petty and benign. It's you know? more embarrassment I think, exactly. than anything else. I think they're, they're a proud family and they, mm-hmm. they got tricked. And there's certainly, you know, the father at one point I think emphasizes how early he caught on. Yeah, just, yeah, and then yeah. he did it to teach his sons a lesson. <laughs> yes, yes, <Yeah>. yes. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Sabzian comes up as, as more sympathetic than, than the Hankas, but although they're not, they don't seem like bad people. No, either. just, you know, maybe relatively privileged in this situation. So let's talk about the ways that Curious Tommy calls attention to the artificiality of filmmaking throughout mm-hmm. this. And there's a lot. There's that long shot of the aerosol can that just like, you, you can't help but think that this, you're watching a movie that's making some very strange choices at that point. Uh, there's a sequence in which he sets up and explains how there's going to be two cameras in the courtroom. And mm-hmm. This one's going to do this. And this one's going to do that. Um, there's the audio dropout at the end, which we, we should talk about. There's the varying film stocks. It's interesting, right? I mean, this is this is this is like a film that constantly calls attention to the you know what it's doing and why it's doing it in some ways. Well, it's not glossy in any way. Like, I mean, it's like involved. Like, there's a lot of, as you say, different things happening in terms of style and approach, but it all feels very. I don't want to say raw, but like very true. <laughs> you know, or <laughs> I mean, there's it's true and false. Yeah. <laughs> and it has to it has to remind us of both of both of these things yeah. at times. You know, because I mean, you you have these. Um, long scenes at the, at, the, at the trial and obviously that's something that, that happened and we're um, getting just a raw dose of reality there but I think uh, there's just this acknowledgement throughout the film that um, it's a film and uh, and that he's uh, using these devices and wants you to think about you know how such devices are being used you know that he's not trying to that there's a trick to it and he wants us to, to know that there's a trick to it yeah like it doesn't feel fussed over and it's uh, attempts to do that you know it just feels like this is how this film works and this is you know what he is concerned with and how he's going to do it. And, and it also calls attention to the fact that it's influencing events as well. I, I remember the sequence correctly. It's when they're asking permission to film. And it says we'd be easier if we did it at such just a date. And then the magistrate they're talking says, I don't know if we can do that. And yeah. the next cut is to, you know, a date even earlier than they requested. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, apparently, and this is, you know, I picked up a lot of nuggets about the film from the audio commentary by Chicago's own Jonathan Rosenbaum and uh, Maymaz Saeed of, of Fafa, I believe I'm, I'm pronouncing that correctly. And then the liner notes from Godfrey Cheshire, who's a, an, an expert on Iranian film. And part of it is that the judge wanted to convict him 
and the Ancas wanted him jailed. They were they were very angry about it, about the whole incident still. So you know there was that influence on the case as as well. And, and a lot of times you hear in the courtroom a lot of times it's Kiristami's voice, even though you don't yeah. see him mm. too. So even if you're not knowing that uh, the, the the sentence was in part influenced by Kiristami in the film, the film throws out any pretense that you're just watching uh, reality unadorned. And he needs us. He feels like he has to let us know that that's the case. We should talk about the audio dropout too. <laughs> which is so lovely and perfect because, you know, whatever, it's, it's almost like Lost in Translation where, where what's actually said in that moment couldn't be nearly as profound as what we think. I, I, I love it so much. Yeah. <laughs> I love how we get like little snippets and, and then it fades away. And, and yeah. I still, I get fooled by it every time though. I feel like, you forget about it. Did something get, what, what's wrong <laughs> yeah. with my, uh, what's wrong with this, uh, with this stream? It's not working because that's the sort of stuff so, that happens on streaming all the time. So I'm, I'm going to be naive here and like that was real, right? Like the, the audio did drop out or was that? It was real up to a point. Okay. And then apparently he just went with it and just just dropped more audio out. Like oh, apparently okay. there was a minor difficulty that they turned into a major dropout for, mm. for, for artistic purposes. Maybe I take back what I was saying about the manipulated uh, or not not being very manipulated. Because <laughs> no, I mean, between what, the, the court, like him, you know, insinuating himself into the trial and that, like, I mean. Yeah, you know. I mean, that, that entire closing sequence is, is feels very extreme makeover you know Tehran edition or something like <laughs> like it's, it's just it's in a way participating in a manufactured quite beautifully manufactured resolution mm-hmm. right I mean this like just having them ride a moped together like that's just such an intimate thing like I love the little moment of Sabzian like figuring out where to put his hand on, on Makhmobov you know like around yeah. his waist around his shoulder so like adding the element of relative privacy to that of not being able to overhear them makes that moment feel so much more intimate and special those flowers Oh my gosh, the flowers yeah. are so extraordinary, and, and, and really, and, okay. So, so then you can say, okay, that there are aspects of that that are staged, or maybe the whole thing is part is like a scene that they made, and yet it reveals something genuine as well, which is what fiction is also nonfiction in that respect. So you can get to a to you can have a fictional premise of of them or a contrived premise of them of them on the moped reconciling with his family, but then you get to a a very real moment of Sabzian breaking down. Having a very strong emotional reaction mm-hmm. to being in this situation—that's that's as real as it gets, you know. And Kiristami is is allowing both of these things to coexist, just you know, to allow fiction and nonfiction to coexist naturally, while at the same time making us aware enough of of it to to think about it, to think about the relationship that fiction and documentary have to each other. Scott, that's kind of a really great summing up of of the movie and and sort of the possibilities it opens up as well. So it seems like we may as well end it there, but we'll be bringing it back in the next half of this episode uh, when we talk about uh, the writer. In the meantime, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. This week, our feedback focuses on Isle of Dogs. Sounds like I love dogs, doesn't it? Uh, (laughs) And Chicken Run. Let's start with the latter. Scott, would you share a letter? Uh, Sure. Uh, Here's one from Olivia, who provides some cultural context, past and present, for Chicken Run. Olivia writes, I think place is so important to Chicken Run, and Nick Park's work more generally. Chicken Run is incredibly specific in its setting and includes some references which would go completely over an American viewer's head. For example, when they get the radio, the music that plays initially is the theme song to The Archers, a long-running and incredibly boring (laughs) radio soap set in a farming village. It's a very specific reference, aimed at a certain middle-class Britishness. The soft country accents in Chicken Run and the Wallace and Gromit series are also very evocative. 
I'm a Brit who lived in the States for most of my childhood. My father, from a British mining town, rolled his eyes watching the garden scenes in Curse of the Were-Rabbit and disdainfully said, quote, This is what your mother's family is like. <laughs> Olivia continues, In many ways, uh, these movies felt like a home I had never known. Obviously, these cozy rural villages don't really exist anymore if they ever did. It's drawn from old British sitcoms and vague memories of Blitz Britain. These memories are largely white. There's a horrible word that's come about recently. Brexity. While I don't think Nick Park films are particularly Brexity, they're too soft, inoffensive, and warm, I can't help but think that the inward-looking dreams of a certain type of Brexiteer do not look so different from the rolling green countryside of Chicken Run. That's a really interesting point, and it's kind of like... I mean, I can point to another another figure, which is Morrissey, who kind of like, you know. You know <laughs> I was not expecting you to bring Morrissey into oh, this can, chicken run discussion. I can bring I'm Morrissey, here for it, Keith. <laughs> I can bring Morrissey in anything. But no, so much of, of Morrissey's, you know, lyrics and sort of just general design sense are so wrapped up in this sort of sense of mid-century Britain. And it's really, you know, it's striking and evocative. And you realize how easily that can tip over into kind of like this really gross racist version of, of, of whitewashing the past and, and this nostalgia when 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 uh, the country wasn't quite so diverse, which is more or less what he's done in, in, with his politics and his public statements since then. And, and, you know, it's an awful word, but isn't I think Brexit is, is an appropriate word to apply to that way of thinking. And like, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, and Chicken Run, I think, is completely innocent of that way of thinking, but you can see how something like that could be co-opted into into people who who feel that way. That's I think it's a really interesting letter. I wonder how it might fit into though thinking about a film like Creature Comforts, for for example, from mm-hmm. Nick Park in terms of uh, social class and concern. And I mean, is it, it, would a film like that be considered like, Brexity? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it's more like Claymation Verde, where where it sounds like <laughs> it's a lot of lot of different types of of uh, of. Uh, well, I think it's mostly Londoners, but a lot of types of uh, British people represented in, in in that series. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me. I mean, Brexity, I guess, was would be describing of a certain white tribalist type. But what does that mean in terms of social class, though? I wonder. Um, I think we're we're not the best. We're as, not very good. The so, Chicago so we're not the best equipped to do this. <laughs> yeah. but, so we appreciate I, we appreciate Olivia's insights. Yeah, any sort of follow up to this would would be great too. For sure. Write us your letters about Morrissey and Chicken Run and how they're all related. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Unified theories only. Yeah. So there's no talking about Isle of Dogs without talking about the controversy around it. Uh, we didn't even try, and neither did our listeners. Genevieve, can you share a letter trying to make sense of it all? Sure. Christopher writes, During your discussion, someone, I think it was Scott, mentioned that they found the ideas about authoritarian regimes, fake news, etc. interesting in the film, and I did as well. This facet of the film also makes me think about another piece of theater that takes place in Japan, Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado, and I wonder if considering that comparison will help to put Isle of Dogs into some kind of perspective or give some insight into what the film is trying to do. The Mikado, as I'm sure you are aware, from Mike Leaves' Topsy Turby, if not the original work, is a light-hearted operetta that takes place in Japan and is known for its exaggerated fantasy depiction of Japan, i.e. it was never meant to actually represent Japan in a realistic way. It uses this fantasy vision of Japan in order to offer critique of the contemporary British society of Gilbert and Sullivan's day. By placing the piece in this fantasy Japan, Gilbert and Sullivan are able to offer their satiric critique in a way that makes the criticism more palatable to the audience that is seeing it. And I wonder if Anderson is trying to do something similar here, in addition to paying homage to the Japanese cinema. That is, is the film, in as much as it is offering any social or political commentary, offering a critique of American society and politics, but using the guise of the fantasy Japan in order to make it easier to take? I do not mean to suggest that this excuses the problematic nature of the representations here. 
Even if this is what the film is trying to do, it does not mean that the concerns that you and others have expressed about the problems of cultural appropriation or cultural tourism that are going on in the film suddenly go away. After all, one of the main differences in my comparison of this film to The Mikado is one of time period and cultural sensitivities. But I think more important is the difference in medium. After all, a theater piece can only be seen in a very select place and at a very select time, and thus the audience for it can be more clearly defined by the writer, at least upon initial release. The same is not true of a film, and certainly not a film in the world we live in now. That's a great letter. Yeah. Uh, and, and one thing, I, I, it makes me kind of regret that we didn't do, I mean, obviously Chicken Run is a great pairing, but Topsy Turvy, why didn't I think about that? That would have been so great. <laughs> I really... Given how much we talked about the controversy <laughs> of Isle of Dogs. Yeah, yeah. and also just the, the film, the film's depiction of how artists engage with a, a culture that is not their own, in that it, it, tends to, it tends to be problematic, but also revealing and... and, and um, exciting in its way and we got to find an excuse to do topsy-turvy um we do and like someone, there'll, be, there'll be there will be there'll be there'll be a film about theater that will come up and we'll seize on it then just you, just seen it topsy-turvy haven't you have no you but i've seen the mikado oh you, you, you love <gasps> i've seen the mikado many times you really you would absolutely adore topsy-turvy it is so brilliant and uh the degree of detail with that that lead <laughs> invests in every aspect of that is just mind-blowing i think the mikado is a really interesting point of comparison too because like mikado has been such a controversy see somewhat recently and and when it's been staged i mean again i'm not necessarily the person who's going to be affected by this so you know my 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 opinion is you know somewhat limited in some ways but mikado as christopher points out is not about japan it's about this british idea of japan from the late 19th century you know Mm -hmm. and and it can be staged as you know an example of of such but you know then again like i said you know i found the whole isle of dog thing was kind of an eye-opening thing as maybe walk through and rethink some some opinions but still a delightful piece of theater though <laughs> right yeah right, i mean I, i've never seen i've actually never seen any production that's staged it in japan every every hmm. depiction i've seen has done something different interesting that's yeah. well that's a way around it then isn't yeah. it yeah yeah well um, i just have i just have the the songs in my head although i default to sideshow bob's version that's not mikado though oh it's just it's before you go to hell there's some episode that some sense Someone I mean, sings Three Little Maids from School. I can't remember yes. what episode it is. There so. is. There is a Mikado reference in The Simpsons. Yeah. Well, wow. what okay. what is happening to me that I can't pull it out of thin air? I mean, is it, is it not? Is it also in that episode? But is that no, no. He does the entirety of HMS Pinafore okay. in, in Cape Fear. All right, I gotta look this up. <laughs> Welcome to the Simpsons podcast, uh, where we go into obsessive detail. This, this has been a very digressive episode, which and is I'm kind of fine a, with it. It's kind of appropriate for the for the movie oh, too. Yeah. You know? Nope, it is. It's in Cape Fear. It is. Yep. It's 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 when they're on the way when they're on the way to Cape Fear in the car they they start singing uh, Three Little Maids from School. Are we? Wow. So, yeah. See the see the Simpsons. Wiki. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is from that episode. Oh, we uh, did we did it. Yeah, it's the same episode, but but uh, the, that whole. Sequence with Sideshow Bob is is all each must pin for, but not only did we uh, we solve the problem of cultural appropriation by coming up with very clear di- guidelines that everyone can follow f- going forward, we we got to the mystery of the Simpsons reference as well. <laughs> we did it. Uh, we, we did, did it. it. All right. We have Christopher right. to thank. For Nowhere that. to go but down from here. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> all right. Well, that wraps up our feedback for this episode. Uh, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts, their recommendations, and anything else film related. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero or email us at comments at next pictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. 
That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll travel out west to discuss the writer and its use of docufiction to explore a little seen part of the world. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be watching an aerosol can roll slowly down the street. See you next time.